0: Welcome to Sunday School at Jolton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills. I'm glad we can have this time together. We use the Nazarene Quarterly for our lessons, and today we actually begin a new unit. So we will spend the next several months looking at the law, the law that was given through Moses to the Israelites back in the desert at Mount Sinai. Specifically, we're going to look at each of the Ten Commandments, but also the idea of the law as a whole. Before we get to the lesson, though, I want to pray the prayer that Paul offers for the Philippians. This is Philippians 1, 9 through 11. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Our lesson today is titled, Not Just Rules. God's Law Reveals to Us Who God Is. You know, for most of us, rules are a necessary evil. We understand that we need rules in order for society to function. And we've gotten used to living in a bureaucratic world, a world of red tape, where we have a lot of regulations They may not make much sense, but we have to put up with them. You know, you pull up to the drive through and you're the only car in sight, and they still insist they need a name so that they won't get the orders confused. You go to get a haircut, and they tell you you need a telephone number before they can cut your hair. We see a lot of these different rules that are put into place. And sometimes this is the attitude that we take toward the law itself. I'm going to ask you to finish this statement. God is, and then there's a blank. How would you fill in the blank? You know, when we ask that question, God is, we might say God is good, God is kind, God is truth. God is faithful, God is loving, God is merciful. We could fill it in in a lot of ways. But what if you heard someone say, God is terrifying. God is dangerous. God is deadly even. God is alien. We don't usually think about those concepts in relation to God, but they are all true of God. You know, our culture today, when we talk about God, the focus is usually God's unconditional love, God's mercy, God's patience. All of these things are true, but by themselves, they present an incomplete picture of God. We envision a God who is soft and warm and fuzzy and huggable, a God who makes life easier for us. You know, a God who showers us with love and attention and affection. A God who is uncritical, who accepts us unconditionally. You know, our God is usually a God whose prime virtue is tolerance. We feel like God is there to validate us. So, we want a God who's there when we need Him. You know, He straightens out the problems, the hassles that we have in life. But then He retreats into the background when we don't need Him. He doesn't really make any demands upon us. Really, it's less of God our Father as God our our grandfather, you know, this kindly older gentleman that pats us on the head and gives us pieces of candy and always loves us no matter what we do. There's a quote by, by Drew Dyke, and he says, This kind of thinking betrays a dangerous illusion. God is radically different from us in degree and kind. He is wholly other, dangerous, alien, holy, wild. When God shows up in Scripture, people cower and tremble. They go mute. The ones who manage speech fall into despair. Fainters abound. And you know, we don't think of it like this, but that is the experience we see in the Bible of many who come into a a face-to-face encounter with God or His messengers. Daniel chapter 10, verses 7 and 8, describes Daniel's reaction. It says, I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. Those who were with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless." In the book of Revelation, when John comes face to face with the living Christ, it says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. You find Isaiah and Ezekiel having the same kind of experience. And what they were reacting to was being in the presence of a holy God. They were overcome by this realization of God's holiness when they were brought face-to-face with the the perfection of who God is. And this grasp of holiness, this is something that's almost totally lacking in our society today. Barna, uh, the group that does all of the religious polling, they did an interesting study where they looked at this concept of holiness. And what they found was this is a concept that, in their words, baffles most Americans. When asked to describe what it means to be holy, the most common reply was, I don't know. Of those identified as born again, only 46%, less than half, believed God had called them to holiness. The, the Barna study concluded by saying, the results portray a body of Christians who attend church, and read the Bible, but do not understand the concept or significance of holiness, do not personally desire to be holy, and therefore do little, if anything, to pursue it. This failure to grasp God's holiness, it has a tremendous effect on who we are as the people of God. You know, we view survey after survey that basically shows no difference between those in the church and those outside the church. And we ask ourselves, you know, why is the modern church so weak, so ineffectual? Why do we seem to be no better at living life than our secular neighbors? Why do we have the same problems, the same weaknesses, the same addictions as the culture around us? And to a great extent, it's because we've lost this concept of God's holiness and Losing this has great consequences for us. There's another quote by Drew Dyke where he says, A healthy appreciation for divine holiness has a tremendous impact on how we live and how we relate to God. And then R.C. Sproul wrote a book considered a classic called The Holiness of God. And in this book he writes that holiness is One of the most important ideas that a Christian can ever grapple with. It is basic to our whole understanding of God and of Christianity. So, as we look at the law, that's one of the main reasons why we are studying this. You know, because our concept of holiness shapes how we see God. And our vision of God is something that is totally skewed in our society today. Sociologist Christian Smith, he did a survey of American teenagers where he wanted to find out about their spiritual lives and what their spiritual lives and beliefs consisted of. And the result of his survey, he describes the fundamental religion of most teenagers in America. Now, these are Christian teenagers as moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, what he means by this is it's moralistic. They believe that the purpose of religion is to live a moral life, to do good things, try to avoid bad things, and in return, I can expect God to reward me. It's therapeutic. The idea is God is there to make me peaceful and happy You know, God is there to smooth out my life. Basically, God exists for me. And it's deism. The idea that God is there, but mostly uninvolved with my life. He's uninvolved until I want Him to be, and then He steps in, solves problems, but He goes away. He doesn't interrupt my plans. He doesn't cause me any inconvenience. He's there when I need Him. He's absent when I don't need Him. Now, uh, Smith writes at the end of this study, God, in the minds of a lot of people, is a combination of butler and therapist. He's always on call to take care of problems that may arise, making me feel better. But he's not intruding. He's not becoming too personally involved. In other words, we remake God in the image that we want him to be. You know, to be the God that pleases us. But this is not the God that we meet at Mount Sinai. This is not the God who introduces himself to the Israelites. This is not the God who wants to reintroduce himself to us, who wants us to see him in all of his holiness. So to help us grasp this idea of God's holiness, this quarter we're going to be looking at the law the law that was given to the Israelites, specifically the Ten Commandments themselves. And the law is a topic that gets overlooked a lot of times in the Christian church. In modern times, we make the mistake of thinking that the Old Testament really has nothing important to say to us. You know, the whole concept of law is confusing to us. We know there are parts of the law that we don't observe anymore, for Example, we don't observe offering sacrifices. Uh, We don't abstain from certain foods. We don't have a temple. But are there parts of the law that we're still responsible for? You know, what importance should we as Christians put on the law? Is the law good? Is it bad? You know, we often think of the Mosaic Law as this huge game of Simon Says a game where God makes these strange, inexplicable demands of His people to see whether they will obey Him or not, to see how well they will obey Him, really to find out if they're listening to Him. But we have to understand, the law was designed with a purpose. It was to allow the Israelites to live in the presence of a holy God. And this is still important to us today because... We, too, are called to live in the presence of a holy God. Now, we live under a new covenant. This covenant made possible through Jesus' death and resurrection. But the point is living in the presence of God. The new covenant, it does not abolish the old covenant. It doesn't replace it. Rather, it transforms it. The requirements of the law, which enabled the Israelites to live with the holy God, these have not been done away with, but they've been transformed. We don't follow the Jewish ceremonial law. We don't offer sacrifices today. Our new covenant involves the sacrifice of Christ, not of animals. You know, we no longer worship at the temple. But the law as a way of knowing God, as a way of pleasing God is still in effect. The externals of the law, how it's practiced outwardly, these have changed. But the internal principles of the law, uh, these are still in effect. And this is why we maintain the Ten Commandments today. In fact, our need for holiness is even greater than the Israelites. You know, among them, God lived in the tabernacle and later in the temple. But God, in our lives, God's presence is far closer. God has made our bodies themselves His temple. God lives within us. And so the relationship is even more intimate. Our need for holiness is even greater because we are living with a holy God indwelling us. In Colossians 1.27, Paul refers to this as a glorious, rich mystery, the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Our lesson is titled, Not Just Rules, to emphasize something that we have to understand about the law. The law was put into effect for our benefit. It remains in effect for our benefit. The law is not something that we tolerate. You know, something that we put up with because we eventually want to go to heaven. The law is something that is something precious, you know, infinitely valuable of great worth to us. And we can see this from looking at how the psalmist regarded God's law. Psalm 119 is full of of the psalmist's feelings for the law. Blessed are those who keep his statutes. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I delight in your decrees. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. And so we can see from what the psalmist is telling us, how precious the law should be to us. Now, a lot of times we have the mistaken idea that because we are saved by grace, that we no longer need the law, the law is no longer relevant, that we have no obligation to keep the law, to keep the principles of the law. Now, we are not saved by obeying the law. Paul made this very clear but that does not mean that the law is no longer of any value to us jesus himself in matthew 5:17 says do not think i have come to abolish the law or the prophets i have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them and paul writes in romans romans 2:13 for it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in god's sight But it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Romans 3.31, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Romans 6.15, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. And you can see the, the attitude of Paul toward how important it is that we obey what God has commanded in the law. Now, from the New Testament, we find groups like the Pharisees who who twisted the law. They focused on the externals, using the law as a way to show how righteous they were, how wicked everyone else was. And we look at this and we condemn it and say, you know, this focus on the law doesn't please God. And it doesn't. But this was something that the Jewish people had always known. They knew the law was intended to be more than just rules. They knew that God was never satisfied with self-righteous, outward compliance with the law. This was the message the prophets gave them over and over again, that God wants a people who serve Him from their hearts, who live in a relationship with Him, not just people who obey the outward aspects of the law. Hosea 6.6, 6, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. And Micah 6.8, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So, the Jewish people knew that God wanted more than just an outward compliance with the law. That it involved an attitude of the heart. So, keep that in mind as we go through this study of the law. Now, today's lesson begins with Exodus chapter 19. Uh, We find the Israelites about three months into their journey. They've left Egypt. You remember God had rescued them from slavery in the land of Egypt, brought them into the desert, and was leading them on to the promised land. So this is about three months after they had left Egypt and God takes them to Mount Sinai and they camp there. And there's a reason for this pause in their travels. God wants to introduce Himself to the Israelites. Before they enter Canaan, they need to reacquaint themselves with just who is this God that they serve. At Mount Sinai, God was doing something totally new in human history. Now, it wasn't that God, it wasn't in the laws themselves. This wasn't new. You know, other other groups of the time had their own laws. And in fact, several of their laws would be similar to the laws that God gave through Moses. So it, it wasn't the laws themselves. But what had never been seen before was that God was entering a covenant relationship with an entire people. Now, remember, God had established a covenant with Abraham, but this was between God and one man, and later the covenant was renewed with Isaac and then with Jacob. But there was no precedent for God making a covenant with an entire people. And uh, there's a quote that says, Ahead of them lay a meeting with God that would change not only their own existence and identity, but would bring a new dynamic to the whole world. And so this covenant that God is planning to establish with them, this is going to be a precursor to the new covenant that will be established through the blood of Christ. The new covenant that will eventually be extended to everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. Now, God's covenant with the people would be more than just a contract. They would be entering a personal relationship with God Himself. And this required that they know who God is, that they understand God's basic nature at its very core, the the fundamental aspect of who God is. Now, remember, the Israelites had been living in Egypt for 400 years. They were surrounded by a pagan culture, you know, in the middle of pagan temples, pagan worship, and they had none of the spiritual resources that, uh, you know, the Israelites would have later that we have today. There was no law that they had. There was no scripture, no tabernacle, no sacrificial system. You know, it would have been almost inevitable that they would have participated to some extent in the culture that was around them. And God had already begun showing the Israelites who He was with the ten plagues when God brings them out of Egypt. God is demonstrating the difference between Himself and the the false gods of Egypt. But now, now that they're about to enter in this unprecedented covenant relationship with God, with the great I Am, they needed to know how God was fundamentally different from all of the false gods they had known in Egypt. And this fundamental difference was, God is a holy God. But this was a hard concept for them to grasp, and it's a hard concept for us to grasp. You know, what does it mean, God is holy? The problem is, we we can't define God. To define something means we, we put it into a class, we categorize it, uh, you know, we use analogies. We say, well, it's like this, it belongs with this group. So, for example, if I were going to define a rabbit for you, I might say, well, it's a small, furry mammal, it has long ears, it chews a cud, And by using those analogies, by using those comparisons to other things, you would be able to get an understanding of what actually a rabbit is, whether you've ever seen a rabbit or not. So you end up with this composite picture in your mind. But we can't do that with God because there's nothing to compare God to. There's no category that God belongs to. He is totally unique. God is truly one of a kind. And so when we try to create analogies, we can't do it. We know that somehow we are made in the image of God, that somehow we are like God. So a lot of times we try to create analogies by comparing God to us, by assuming that God is like us. And we know the qualities that we find admirable, that we find likable in humans. And so we may use these to define God. For example, you know we, we consider it a good thing to be kind, to be loving, uh, to be forgiving. And so we say, well, God, God is like that. God is like us in that sense. So we, we know what qualities we find in humans. We use them to, to describe God. But that leads us to big problems. John Piper writes... When we try to move from us to God instead of from God to us, we will skew Him badly, which is one of the great errors of our generation. What we end up doing is creating a God in our image, a God with the qualities that we want Him to have, with the qualities that we think are important, You know, a God that we can understand, really a God who likes the same things we do, who dislikes the same things we do. You know, it's interesting when we look back at the Civil War in the United States, you had preachers from the South who were convinced God was on their side. You had preachers from the North convinced God was on their side. Now, both of those cannot be true, but somehow each group was convinced God was like them. And so we end up making this picture of God where God is formed in our image. And it's because we really have no way of grasping the holiness of God, which God's holiness is rooted in His ability to be, is, sorry, in His inability to be defined. John Piper writes, God's holiness is His absolute uniqueness. God's holiness is His incomparableness. Now, He is separate from all that is not God. He is uniquely and infinitely God. So, when we say God is holy, we are saying God is God. To be holy is to be God. Holiness is the union of everything that God is. It's not something that God has. It's who God is. A.W. Tozer writes, Holy is the way God is. To be holy, He does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. So holiness is a, a composite term that, recom- that represents God's consummate perfection and total glory. Holiness is not a standard that we measure God by. God shows us what holiness is. So, when we say that God is absolute moral perfection, we don't mean that God matches some moral code perfectly. What we mean is, God is the perfect moral code. God is the personification of morality, of what morals are. God's holiness means that God is always perfectly Himself. He can never do anything Or be anything that contradicts himself he is always perfect godness perfectly godlike can never be less than so you know we know God is true and what we mean by that is God can never be false God can never be anything but infinitely true God is love he can never act in any way but love he can never be anything other than infinite love and this is expressed, I, I like the way Paul expresses this in Romans verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 4, where Paul writes, Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. In other words, we know that God is true and will always be true and can never be anything but true, no matter how many men are saying something that's opposite of that. God cannot be anything but God. God is holy. God's holiness means two very dis- or very important things to us. First of all, He is other. He is separate. He's set apart in a class by Himself. God is different not just in degree. A lot of times we have the idea that God is kind of a, a superman. You know, He's like we are. He's just at a, a much higher level. So, you know, God is more powerful than we are. God's wiser than we are. God can do a lot more things than we can. But God is not human. God is not superhuman. God is holy. God is different. God is other, unique. And then secondly, God is perfectly pure, unadulterated, impeccable, perfectly God, perfectly Himself. So, when we say God is holy, we are saying that God is God. It can be difficult for us to understand that, but it's important that we get a grasp of what this means. Now, why was it important for the Israelites to understand God was holy? Well, their covenant relationship required them to be holy. Leviticus 11:44 says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy holy for I am holy. So the idea of learning what it meant to be holy, this wasn't just some kind of theological thing where you would sit around and discuss it for the fun of it. This had a direct application to them. They were to be holy themselves. Leviticus 19:2 Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. And this wasn't something that was demanded of just the Israelites. It's important for us today. We have to understand what God means by holiness because we too are called to be holy. First, uh, First Peter 1.15 says, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Jesus tells us, Matthew 5.48, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Hebrews 12, 14, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. So we can see that holiness is a, an essential part of who we are as the people of God. Now, we define holiness by saying that God is totally separate, totally different. Holiness is something that is unique to God. It's only possible through God. We can be holy. We can be made holy, but only in connection with God's holiness. Holiness doesn't exist apart from God. You know, holiness is not something that God puts on us. Uh, It is God's spirit within us that makes us holy. You know, if God's Spirit is absent, there is no holiness. There's no holiness apart from His presence. For the Israelites to be holy required them to live in the presence of God. We have the mistaken idea that we are holy because of something we do. Uh, A lot of times we boil it down to our lifestyle. We are holy because of the clothing that we wear because of the activities that we participate in or that we don't participate in, the standards that we keep. But these things do not make us holy. The only way we are holy is because we have God's Holy Spirit living within us. We are made holy through God's anointing, through the presence of the Spirit, not just upon us, but actually indwelling us. God doesn't make us holy apart from Him. God makes us holy by letting us be in Him. And so, you know, we kind of have the idea, well, God made us holy and then sent us on our way. But no, God makes us holy by dwelling within us. If God leaves, holiness leaves. And so, this means that God is to be taken seriously. To live in the presence of a holy God brought with it enormous blessings. It was something of tremendous value, but it also carried serious risks. To transgress against God's holiness was something that often resulted in immediate death. You know, when God appeared to the Israelites at Mount Sinai, there were a lot of dramatic effects. And this wasn't just to put on a show. God had a purpose. He wanted the Israelites to realize what it meant to be in the presence of God, to realize the the, uh, danger that literally it put them into. When, When God appears, the Bible tells us there was thunder, there was lightning, there was a thick cloud over the mountain as God descended in flame and smoke. Then it talks about a trumpet blast and a trumpet blast that goes louder and louder and louder. So the mountain itself is shuddering, is shaking. You can imagine this got their attention and God wanted to have their attention. He wanted them to understand the seriousness of what they were about to what they were about to, to take part in To where they would live in relationship with a holy God. God wanted them to know who they were dealing with. You know, God tells Moses, he says, Warn this people, if they attempt to break through the barrier set up around this mountain, then I will break out against them. They will perish. Transgressing God's holiness had serious consequences at that time and today. And often we don't take it seriously. But if we as Christians treat God's holiness as a trifling thing, there are enormous consequences. An interesting story in in the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, is the story of Uzzah. Now, this was uh, when David was trying to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. Now, you remember the story. The Israelites had taken the Ark of the Covenant with them when they went to battle the Philistines because they they assumed that if they had the Ark, then they would automatically have victory. But this wasn't the case. The Philistines defeated them in battle and captured the Ark. However, the Philistines realized they had something that they couldn't handle. And because of plagues breaking out, they sent the the uh, ark back to Israel. But it stayed away from Jerusalem. And so David was going to get it to bring it back to Jerusalem. And so they went to get the ark and it says they put it on a cart and had it pulled by oxen. And Uzzah was one of two drivers on the cart. And as they were moving along, the oxen stumbled. And Uzzah, to steady the ark reached out his hand, and put his hand on the ark. And when he does this, God strikes him dead. And you think of that. Well, that doesn't seem so bad to us, you know. He, he was trying to protect the ark. But Uzzah was treating as something trifling the holiness of God and coming into contact with the holy things of God. And later in the New Testament, You know, in in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gives a very stern warning to the Corinthians about partaking of the Lord's Supper. He writes, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. This is why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Now, the Corinthians were treating the Lord's Supper as ordinary food. They were treating what was sacred as what was ordinary, as what was profane. They were insulting, really, the sacrifice of Christ. And this is is a difficult uh, chapter to understand, and I don't understand all of it at all. But I think we do get the clear understanding that the things of God are not to be trifled with. And when we treat them in an unworthy manner, when we dismiss the holiness of God, we pay a consequence for that. Uh, As we've said, God's holiness is expressed in two distinct ways. First of all, He is other, you know, set apart, totally unique in a class by Himself, and perfectly pure, unadulterated, without any taint. And to get Israel to understand these two aspects of who He is, God makes two distinct requirements of them before they can approach him, before he gives them the law. He uh, stresses purity by requiring them to consecrate themselves and purify themselves. And he stresses separateness by requiring them to set boundaries, to separate off the secular from the sacred. Now, we are going to finish this lesson next Sunday and look at, into, into these two ideas with more detail to see what God required of the Israelites and what He required of us today if we are going to truly understand and embrace God's holiness. But it's important that we rediscover what it means for God to be holy. Isaiah 29, 13 says, The Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. And how, how often does that describe the modern church? You know, especially here in the South, we're, we're in the Bible Belt. We have churches on every corner. Almost everybody goes to a church church claims to be part of a church, and yet how many of us are truly worshiping God, truly in a relationship with God. And so my prayer for us as we continue with this study of God's holiness is that we will be able to grasp this idea and that God's holiness will then transform us into what He desires so that we can have a true relationship with Him. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this glimpse of Your holiness that we've gotten through Your Word. We can't imagine it in its full capacity, but what we do see, Lord, leaves us in awe and amazement at who You are. And we ask that You would You would bless this upon our hearts and our minds so that we are equipped to enter into a relationship with a holy God and we'll give you the praise in your name. Amen.